gospel song. I, I was not familiar with that song. That's, that's great. Um, really kind of guiding us in and, and God being our captain and just kind of the things we use to guide us and lead us in life. And, and one of those situations can be our assessment of other people and our assessment of ourselves compared to those people. Um, if I were to have you to think and ponder about what does it mean to have your life all together, um, I think a lot of us would answer like, I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I could have that figured out. I wish I knew the answer to that question. Yet I'm guessing that throughout this week, um, throughout our year, and probably today, we've had those moments where we've looked at another individual or another group of people, and we say that, you know, they've, They've got something figured out that I don't. They've got, they know something that I need to know, and we frequently do that. We frequently uh, judge ourselves or assess ourselves by other people and the circumstances they find themselves in, uh, by the appearances that they have or the way they even just uh, give themselves off in public, maybe in the people they associate themselves with or the toys or possessions they seem to have, and, and we seem to look at them and say, man, they just seem to have it all together. And I'm guessing some of us have done this already today as we've come to God's house. Um, Parents, we are horrible about doing this. We'll look at other parents and their kids and their kids are acting like little angels and we kind of did the highlight reel. We need to keep that in mind in those moments. But sometimes we see our kids are like, ah, and we see their kids like, ah, and and we begin to assess, man, what are they doing as parents that I'm not? What do they know that I don't know? Some of us do when we look at other people and the way they appear and the way they dress and, and maybe even the cars they drive. Say, wow, they seem to have something going on in their life. It's just good and, and it's together and I don't understand that. In fact, I, I did a, a little project or experiment one time in a class I was teaching where I was with a group of people and I asked people to share about something that they excel in. Say one thing, just say one thing that you excel in, one thing you're really good at, one thing that that other people could learn from you. And as we sat in that class, the bulk majority of the people were silent. There's one or two that was pretty prideful of themselves, but for the most part, they they were just quiet and they just kind of looked at each other. But when I flipped the question, I said, look at somebody in this classroom. I want you to say one thing about that person that they're really good at. Something you see in them that, that they just shine in. And, and the conversation just exploded. It got to a point where I actually had to cut it off so we could get into uh, the, the purpose of the question. A lot of times we can look at other people's lives and we say, man, they've got it together. They've got something going on that I don't. And I'm just, I, we can feel like a failure. Feel like we don't measure up to that. I say that because it really leads into our passage this morning If you have your Bibles with you or whatever you're looking into the Word of God, if you want to make your way to the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in chapter 19. We're in the midst of our like series. We're drawing closer and closer to wrapping this series up. And today, uh, one of the likes that came out of the poll in the congregation was the story dealing with the rich young ruler. In Matthew chapter 19, we're introduced to this individual Um, This story is actually found in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
And Matthew, we're, letting, we're told uh, later in the passage that he is uh, young and that he is a ruler. Uh, we learn that from the Gospel of Luke. And we also learn that he is wealthy by the end of this conversation he has with Jesus. The Gospel of Mark lets us know that this man was so eager to speak with Jesus that he ran to Jesus and he knelt before him, giving him this representation of humility. But dealing with assessments, here's a man that lived in uh, Jewish eyes as a man who had it all together. He was rich. He was wealthy. In the eyes of a Jewish individual, wealth came from the blessings of God because one was living righteously and God was just pouring out those blessings onto that individual. We're told he's a ruler, which most likely points that he was a ruler of some synagogue in the area. So he was, had authority over other people. He had authority over religious activities within the worshiping and the hearing of the word of God. Now he was young. He had his strength. He had his future ahead of him. And as people looked at this individual, I imagine they did a lot of what we do, and they were assessing, man, this is a guy who has it all together. This is a guy who knows what he's doing. If we lived in his day, we'd probably want to sit down with him and say, hey, can you give me the steps to do whatever you're doing so I can have a life that you're living? Well, the Gospel of Matthew tells us this man is wrestling. Even though it appears he has things all together, he's wrestling with this sense of lack, of lacking. See, there's no one in this room who has everything all together. You find us maybe it's in our high moments or in our low moments. We all have struggles. We all have things that we wish we could do better, things that we wish uh, could be better in our life. And here's a man, by appearances, man, he, he's just like top Jew guy. I mean, blessed, rich, wealth, money, age, authority. And yet he comes to Jesus, and beginning in verse 16, we have this conversation it's interesting that he waits for the children to be dismissed. That's what happens earlier. And then he pounces at the question. So he says to Jesus, Teacher, verse 16, What good must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, Jesus responds, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, which ones, he asked. Jesus answered, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, well, I've kept all of these. Young man told him, what do I still lack? See, this is his heart's coming out. Something's still not right. Verse 21, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said to him, go, sell your belongings and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. When disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The question that the gentleman wants to know is, what good thing must I be doing to have eternal life? This gentleman came to Jesus because Jesus has been getting notoriety in the, in the area. He's becoming a teacher. The other Gospels let us know that the man first opens up by saying, good teacher, a good rabbi. 
He's seeing Jesus as one who has authority concerning the matters of God. This man had been living an exemplary life, and Jesus had something that he knew he lacked. And so his question is, Jesus, teacher, I'm doing all this stuff, but something is still off. So what do I need to be doing? What is this new law, this new commandment that you have been giving to the people that I need to apply to my life so that I may have eternal life? And if you look how Jesus answers the question, he doesn't immediately deal with the eternal life issue. He immediately jumps to, why do you call me good? And some people remark, this is Jesus right here in Scripture saying that he's not equal with God. This is Jesus, he's denying his deity, but that is not what is happening. What Jesus is doing is he's doing what we saw the last couple of weeks with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. He's meeting the man where he is. The man did not see Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. He did not see Jesus as the one promised by, by the Scriptures. He did not see Jesus as the Son of God. He saw Jesus as a good teacher. He saw Jesus as one who had authority. So what Jesus does, he does not deny he is God, but he meets the man where he is, and he's going to do is get him to where he needs to be. The man had become blinded by his own ego. So he says, why do you call me good? And he points to the fact that there's only one who is good, and that good person is God, right? The word good there in the Greek means to be excellent. It means to be without fault. It means to be doubtless. Jesus is correcting the man that we don't call anybody good. We don't assess anybody to be good because there's only one who is actually good, and that is the holy God who is perfect. After dealing with that, Jesus is not giving him a laying down of rules when he asks him, what about the commandments? Do you keep them? He's not saying that there's a way that we can earn or, or work our way into life. Again, he's trying to take this man on this journey to where he is, to where he should be. So he says, well, you should keep the commandments. And the man says, well, which ones? He's eager to know, which one should I be doing? Because I'm obviously not doing something right. I've got all this stuff going on for me in my life, but something in my heart says something is off. So which ones? Which ones, teacher? Which, which ones am I not doing? And so Jesus, you got to love it. He lays it out. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And what a bold response this man has. Oh, yeah, I do those. I've, I've done all of them. Matter of fact, another gospel says, I've done those since I was a little kid. That, that's nothing new. And so what Jesus does is he, he takes him his place of what he's asking, what do I still lack? And he's showing his misinterpretation of the law. If you look there in verse 18 in the commandments that Jesus gave, they should sound familiar, come out of the Ten Commandments. You can go back to Exodus chapter 20 and look at it there. And what Jesus does not do is he does not focus on the first four commandments. first four commandments focuses on our relationship with God, that God is God. He alone is God. He should alone be worshipped. We should not serve any other false gods. And we should honor the Sabbath because the Lord set it apart as perfect. And so it's our relationship with him in the first four. But Jesus focuses on the latter six in dealing with our relationship with people. And again, the question is, how do I have eternal life? What Jesus is revealing is it's not about a rules and regulations. It's not about actually keeping to the law, though that is beneficial. But it's how eternal life not only is in us, but comes out of us and impacts the people that God has put around us. 
The evidence of eternal life, your eternal security, your salvation is how you treat people that God has put around you. That is the evidence. That is the fruit. That is the good works that Jesus talks about. And so he's taking them and saying, all right, here's the commands and here's how you should be living. And the man's response is, I've been doing that. And yet something's still off. And so Jesus brings down the hammer where he says, if you want to be perfect, Because that's the credential. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to get rid of this sense of lacking, if you want to have all this stuff gone and you want to know that you are, in fact, good, then go sell everything you have. Go give it away to the poor and then come and follow me. And one of the saddest verses in Scripture, there's several of them, but this is one of them. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Here's a man so eager to be with Jesus, so eager to hear from Jesus, so eager to see Jesus and be in his presence and to learn from him. And when Jesus finally spoke to him words of truth, he wanted nothing of what Jesus had to say. He wanted nothing what he had to offer and nothing what he was calling him to. So what was Jesus saying? See, Jesus was calling out this man's heart that he was more attached to this life than the eternal life. And see, to live for eternity is what we're called to do here on this earth. But when we are more attached to this world than the eternal, we will always have this lack of fulfillment, this lack of of, of feeling like we're doing something right. And a lot of times when we live for this world is when we find ourselves falling into sin. And so Jesus is calling him out of this this world that will perish and fade and go away, and he's calling him to eternal, that don't be attached to this. This stuff is going to fade away. It is going to go away. You're not going to take it with you into eternity. Let it all go. Instead, be attached to me. That's what he's saying. Come and follow me. Release yourself from this and attach yourself to me. But this man was so in love with his possessions that he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. See, the things that he thought was making him the good person, the person everybody wanted to be, was actually the thing that was keeping him in chains. Because he loved his possessions more than people. Jesus said the very last of those commandments is, love your neighbor as yourself. This man could not do it. And he came to the realization, all these things that he thought he'd been doing since a child, he in fact hadn't been doing at all. Jesus is calling him and he's calling us to live from being selfish to being selfless. That all this stuff that we acquire in this life isn't for our own benefit. It isn't for other people to look at us and say, wow, look what they've got. Look what they're doing. It isn't so we can write a how-to book. It's so that we can constantly give it away that people can come to know the love of God. It's not ours. God did not send Jesus Christ to this earth to die for possessions, but to die for people. And so when we look out on our church van, you look on the church website or church Facebook, and it says, love God and love people, this is exactly what we are proclaiming that we are going to do. We at Harvest Hill are going to be selfless. We are going to continue to give ourselves away to love people so that they can come to know the love of God. The danger is in churches and with individuals is we become clingy to stuff. Like it's ours. 
like it belongs to us, like we actually deserved it. Here's a man that people would look at and say, man, he's got it together. God is blessing him. God is with him. He has found favor with God. He must be living righteously. And the reality of it is he had been living in idolatry. So we can assess people by their outer appearance, but what God is really interested in our hearts, and this man's heart was more attached to this world than to the eternal kingdom. That's why he walked away. He could not let go of this world. And that's what God's calling us to do, to let go. Say, God, it's all yours. You gave all of yourself for me, and I give all that I have back to you. It's all yours, no restrictions, nothing. And that's scary because we like to think we're in control. But as this man walks away, if you notice what happens, Jesus then turns his attention to his disciples because here's a teaching moment. Here's a moment that they've got to understand what is going on. And so Jesus says in verse 23, Truly I tell you, it will be hard. Notice he does not say impossible. He says hard. The word hard there is implying it will be extremely difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished. They were, I mean, they were taken back. Because this is, this is totally changing their view of society. To be rich is to be blessed. To be blessed is to be declared righteous by God. God gives riches. And now you're saying that if you have riches, that doesn't mean anything? Jesus is taking this idea of what we would call a prosperity gospel today, and he's turning it over. He's saying it's not about you being healthy and wealthy. It's about where is your heart? Is your heart healthy with God? Is your heart connected with God? Is your heart going after God? It's not about what you can bring in your resume to God. It's what God wants to bring to you and give to you. Jesus is taking this idea that, you know what, I can be good enough. I can work hard enough if I just do the right things. He's taking that and he's totally obliterating it. He said, it doesn't matter about your resume. It doesn't matter about what you bring or your to-do list. It matters is where is your heart with God? You can have all the things of this world and you can still miss eternity. It's easier to go through, for a camel to go through the eye of Neil than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And their question is, who can be saved? Now, there's, there's some debate on whether Jesus is actually talking a, a place called a needle gate and whether that actually existed. Some theologians say, yes, there's a needle gate. It's really small. Only one person can go in at a time or out at a time through the city gate. And so to take a camel through it would be impossible. Some people say, no, that doesn't exist. Jesus is just painting this, this picture in your head. What the reality of what Jesus is saying, whether the needle gate exists or not, is the impossibility of us earning or working for or obtaining our salvation by our own means. See, the law did not come to give us a roadmap so that we could get into heaven and God say, well done. The law came to reveal sin in our life. It's a measuring rod. It shows the perfection of God and how much we fall, about, fall, fall from it. It reveals that even in our best day, even those days we're thinking we're doing a pretty good job, if I were to actually look at the law and I would measure myself compared to law, I would see how much of a mess I truly am. He says it's impossible. You can't be good enough. You can't be perfect. You can't squeeze yourself and your camel through that hole. 
But with God, all things are possible. And the reality is, is that salvation, if you're saved, you are a living, walking, talking, breathing miracle. Because that is God doing the impossible in your life and in your heart. So is God and Jesus, are they against riches? Are they against wealth? Well, you got to understand the idea of being rich in Jesus' days is that you get to eat more than once a day. That's pretty rich. The idea of being rich in Jesus' days is that you actually have a home that you go to, and it's not like your home and like your kid. It's like your home and your family, maybe an extended family living with you. And so it's a different idea than, than ours today. It's just having what we would call, you know, the necessities. But Jesus is not against that. The Bible is not against riches. The Bible is not against you being wealthy or you achieving wealth. But it is the root to all kinds of evil, the Bible does say. The problem with riches and what we've been able to find in studies, and it just goes with the Word of God, is riches can give us this false sense of security that we have it all together. And so we look at people's cars, we look at people's clothing, we look at people's toys and their gadgets and gadgets, we look at people's vacations, we're like, wow, how are they able to do that that we can't? And it gives a false sense of security. I must be doing something right. Riches cause us to depend on them more than God. See, if you have money and you have wealth and you don't really have to struggle and ask God, please, God, provide for me today. You just write the check and go on with your life. The riches can finally, they can allow us to cling to this life, which is what this man has been doing, rather than clinging and hoping for the eternal. We would get so comfortable. We get so satisfied. Man, this life is good. I never want to leave. But the reality is, this life is pale in comparison to the eternal glory with our God. So Jesus is not saying it's not impossible. He's saying the struggles that people have who have wealth and have money is that they, don't, they do not depend on God the way God wants them to depend on Him. They become attached to those things. So if you have money, you have wealth, man, God bless you. But you really need to check your heart. Am I becoming attached to these worldly things more than I'm becoming attached to following Jesus? That's what He's calling Him out of, to attach Himself to Him. So Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Man, you cannot work your way to God. You cannot earn your way to God. You cannot be good enough before God. But with God, all things are possible. John MacArthur writes concerning this, this idea that Jesus presents is that if you gave everything you ever had and everything you ever will have, it would still be nowhere near enough to merit entry into the kingdom. This is crystal clear in Scripture. You simply cannot buy your way in. To be enthralled with material wealth makes a person unfit for the kingdom. Even if the person isn't wealthy, nor does the kingdom belong to self-righteous people or those who think their religion, their morality, their education, their humanitarianism, their philanthropy, environmentalism, political viewpoint, or anything else might earn merit with God. God's law is very straightforward. Jesus summed it up. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The book of James tells us whoever keeps the entire law that stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So the law condemns us all because we all fall short of that measure. It is the very height of arrogant presumption to imagine that fallen sinners could sufficiently satisfy God's perfect standard of righteousness or somehow win His favor by trying to cover our guilt with our own imperfect works. Here's the reality. The man approached Jesus feeling that he had his life all together, even though he knew something was right. I wonder if he was ready to brag. Look what I've been doing. Look at all the stuff I've accomplished. 
Look what I bring to the table. And Jesus' message to him and message to us is not about what we think we can bring to the table, but it's what has already been brought. God loved you and loved me in our sin, in our faults, that he sent his only son to die for our sins that we might be completely forgiven and declared righteous, not by anything that we can do, anything we can bring, but simply because God loves you and is for you. The reality is if you're trying to prove yourself to God and, and prove yourself to other people that, you know, I go to church or I'm a member of this church or I'm a good person, you're going to fall short of heaven. Jesus said very clearly, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is what Jesus was putting before this man, what he's putting before us all. What are we clinging to? What are we treasuring? Is it Jesus above all else? Or are there other things in our life we're clinging to and we're having difficulty letting go? Truth is, is when we do that, God looks at us and his heart grieves. Just as this man heard the news of Jesus and his heart grieved and he left. Are you clinging to something other than the eternal kingdom? Our goal is this church. Your goal as a child of God is to shine eternity into the lives of people that God puts around you. That's why Jesus used these latter six of the commandments, is that people should see the eternal change in our lives. In the book of 1 Peter in chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, meaning from this world, meaning we don't belong here anymore, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Why? To conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. The word Gentiles means those who do not believe, but are looking at the way you and I are living our life, that when they slander you as evildoers, when they speak badly about you, they will observe your good works and will glorify God in the day he visits us. Jesus points to eternity and, and eternal life as something that is in us and should be coming out of us all the time. That we are so aware of God's grace, His generosity, His love, that that's all that comes out of us as we go about our life. I'm going to tell you now, it is impossible to do that if I'm clinging more to this world than to the eternal. It's impossible. Because I will begin to love those things more than I love God. So where are you at this morning? You may have came here this morning and feeling like you had things pretty well together. And now you're realizing, well, maybe I'm not doing as good as I thought. That's a good thing. It reveals that the Spirit is working in your life and convicting you, and God is trying to transform you more into His likeness. You may be here this morning, and you come to realize, you know what, I've been putting my trust in being a good person or just going to church every single Sunday and just you know, trying to do the right thing every now and then, and understanding that that is not going to ditch you salvation. You can do all those things and you can still end up in hell, separated from God forever. But because God loves you, he's brought you here this moment to cling to him instead of the things that you think you can do. The Bible says it first begins by admitting that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of God's glory. I may have good days, but I know I've got bad ones too. 
Because I have bad ones, I have things I struggle with, things I wrestle with, things that I, I know is not all together. It's the reality of sin in my life. And because there's sin in my life, it has to be dealt with, and I can't deal with it. But Jesus Christ dealt with all of my sins because God loves me. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. They placed him in a tomb, but he came out three days later that we could be completely forgiven, declared righteous before God. And if I believe that, because I'm a sinner, I need that. The Bible says, I believe it in my heart and I need to confess it with my mouth and then I'll be saved. If you've been relying upon your church attendance for salvation, you're lost. But now's the time. I'm going to stand down here and invite the worship team to come on up. For you to confess Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Confess Jesus is what I need and the only thing I need. And the Bible says when I do that, I will be saved. Brothers and sisters of Christ, the final plea I have for us all is to take a look at our life and allow God to look at our life. To see the things we may be clinging to rather than God. Are we clinging to other people's judgments about ourselves? Are we clinging to what we have or what we don't have? Are we clinging to our own achievements in life? Are we clinging to Jesus? Is that what people would say is the main thing in our life? Is that what people say is the main thing at Harvest Hill? That Jesus is front and center. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Lord, forgive us when we have our pride and our ego trips. Forgive us when we think there's nothing in our life that needs to be changed, that we are already living perfect and holy. Lord, I thank you for your word that reveals things that are not as they should be. But you are calling us out of that, out of that darkness and into your light. Father, I ask in this time, this place, as you reveal to your children's hearts those things that we just need to let go. We just need to lay at your feet so that we can cling to you tighter. We need to release those things from our hands so we can grab your hand in that. Father, give us the strength to do that. This temptation comes in this moment for us to sit and not do anything about it. Father, give us the strength to move and respond and to repent and to be the individual you need us to be. Make us the church you need us to be. Let us not just have it on our van that we love you and we love people, Lord. Let it be evident that we are continually giving ourselves away, giving our resources away, that you could be glorified, that people would see your grace and your generosity and your love and your forgiveness to them by the way we treat them, the way we love on them. For every ministry that is on the calendar in the weeks and months ahead, Lord, we ask that you begin transforming that and molding that so that is what is seen. That they see Harvest Hill, they see the people that go to Harvest Hill as people who are clinging to Jesus and following Jesus and nothing else. Father, we are all a mess. We all have these things we struggle with, these things we wrestle with, the things we worry about, the things we have fear about. Forgive us, Lord, to looking at other people and, and, and judging or assessing ourselves based on them. But, Lord, let us look to you. You call us to be perfect. Father, give us that heart's desire. Lord, don't let us leave this place with a broken heart. Help us leave this place being restored and full of your joy. I pray right now for the individual in this room that has come to the awareness that you've given them. They do not know you as their Lord and Savior. They have done all the, the stuff, the Christian stuff, but they've yet to call on you. And I ask in this moment you give them the strength to step out of that, that chair, to walk in this aisle, and to let it be known they want Jesus in their life.
Father, give us the courage we need. Oh, this is so scary. Help us have the faith we need to live this way. Thank you for doing the impossible in our life. Forgive us if we have failed you in any time in this place. Praise on your son's name.